Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 15, recorded Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cincerapino. Well, today is the last day of summer, 2019, and boy, has it been a really busy time for us. Um, And it didn't get any uh, less busy this week. Uh, We uh, had an emergency first response class this week. Uh, We're doing a rescue class this weekend. There's an open water class also going on this weekend. Yesterday, we did uh, a nitrox class, and earlier this week, uh, Monty and I were up at the the Boston Sea Rovers uh, meeting for the month of September, getting ready for uh, the clinic in March 2020. So still a lot going on up here. We'll be diving next weekend up at Jamestown, Rhode Island to uh, finish up some certifications, and uh, then it's off to uh, to the Caribbean and DEMA and maybe out to the Philippines as well. I want to start off today by talking about a piece of dive gear or something that I consider a piece of dive gear that is often neglected by a lot of divers, and that is their logbook. Now, we teach our divers from the first day of open water class that they should religiously maintain their dive log. And it's important because it is a record of your diving, and it shows you uh, what your adventures have been, and also is packed with a lot of information that you'll need in the future. So how many times have you overheard the question being asked by a dive master uh, for a customer, how much weight do you need? And it's often amazing how people are really not cognizant of how much weight they wore the last time they dove or when they dove in similar conditions. It's very easy to consult your logbook if you've maintained it to be able to figure that out. It's packed with so much information. It's like the diary of your diving adventures. And you can write down a lot of different things, your observations, weather conditions, exposure protection, uniqueness of the dive, and that sort of stuff. So really keep your logbook updated. What I thought I'd do is I thought I'd go back into my logbook and talk a little bit or talk about a couple of dives that I did that show how things change from time to time. So I'm going to take you back to uh, 2007, and this was dive 169, and it was on October 25th, 2007, and it was the Antilla Wreck in Aruba. Now, we got in at 3.20 in the afternoon, and we were out of the water at 4.07 in the afternoon, 47-minute bottom time at a depth of 50 feet. I started with 2,900 PSI and ended the dive at 1,100. It was salt water from a boat with a 3-millimeter wetsuit suit with boots. Surface temperature was 85 degrees with a bottom temperature of 82 I had visibility in the 50 to 60 foot range. And here are my comments from the dive. 
got onto the one-tank afternoon dive as we were blown out of this dive yesterday. It was a good call to do the dive. Best wreck dive yet. Impressive 400-foot World War II-era German freighter. Big and a lots of fish life. Several eels hiding out. The ship lies on its side and is split in half at midships. Bow section is great to swim along. On the back side, the magnitude of the ship is like a high wall. Excellent dive. Something that needs to be done several more times. Well, we didn't get to do it several more times, but we were very fortunate enough to get back to Aruba a couple of years later, almost two years to the date. And here's my dive from October 21st, 2009, and it was dive 262, Antilla, Aruba. This time we got in at 9.54 a.m. and we're out of the water at 10.40, 46-minute dive at a depth of 53 feet. I started with 3,000 PSI and ended the dive with 900. I didn't wear any weight. I had a 3-millimeter wetsuit with boots, a saltwater dive from a boat. Air temperature was 86 degrees with a bottom temperature of 82, 80-plus foot visibility. And here are my comments. Our second time on the German freighter, Antilla, wreck in 1940s. Lots of damage from Hurricane Omar last October. Still an impressive wreck. Very long, over 400 feet. Lots of fish life. They let us go in early, and we had a nice leisurely dive around the wreck. Lots of divers on the site at the end of the dive. The boat was the Passabon with Captain Norman and dive master Sierra and Yvette. So you can see it's really nice to go back and see how things change from one year to the next on, on your dives and write down your comments, and it's really interesting to relive those dives. So be a good diver and don't neglect this important piece of gear, your logbook. As scuba divers, we get to experience a lot of great things underwater. And one of those experiences is being able to observe sea turtles. Sea turtles just light up a dive site. When we come across one, we can find all of our photographers rushing in to try and get pictures of, of the turtle in its natural habitat. But like everything in the ocean, sea turtles are also under threat. And there are a lot of organizations out there to try and help protect sea turtles. One of those is the Sea Turtle Conservancy, and you can find that, um, them at conserveturtles.org. Now, it is the oldest sea turtle organization in existence, and it started in 1959. Actually, it was started in response uh, to a book that was written by Dr. Archie Carr, a renowned ecologist, in 1956, and that book was called The Windward Road, and it's and it alerted to people way back in 1956 about the plight of sea turtles. Now, they started out as, uh, the Conservancy started out as an organization called the Brotherhood of the Green Turtle, which then morphed into the Sea Turtle Conservancy. You can also find the book there. They re-released it, uh, and if you want to get a copy of it, you can order it from uh, the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Now, it's a great website. It's filled with so much information. Uh, you can look up all the different types of turtles. It'll give you size, weight, diets, habitat, nesting, range, threats, population size, and you can even download a fact sheet on all the different sea turtles. It also has uh, talks about uh, the threats to sea turtles. 
And one of those threats that's out there is artificial lighting. I was particularly interested in that because there was a segment on Planet Earth 2 that was filmed in Barbados that showed the effects of the lighting, uh, artificial lighting on the sea turtles in their nesting sites and the, ne- uh, the hatchlings trying to get down to the ocean. Um, what happens is it's also uh, the artificial lighting also discourages nesting from the females. So they, they won't go and, and actually lay, deposit their eggs in their normal nesting sites. But the, hatch, the hatchlings have this innate instinct that leads them uh, in the brightest direction, and that really should be the moon reflecting off the water. And the artificial lighting doesn't just uh, affect one species, it affects all the species of, of sea turtles. So turn off the lights during turtle nesting season. Um, there are a lot of different things that they talk about in the website. Turn off or use special uh, fixtures that should shield uh, the lighting using low-pressure sodium vapor or LPS lights. There are also uh, turtle-safe lights. There are red lights that emit very narrow portions of the visible light spectrum. Uh, Tint your windows or uh, close your curtains. Now, they do a lot of work in Florida on uh, the uh, artificial lighting because 90% of all sea turtles nesting in the U.S. are in Florida. And the Sea Turtle Conservancy worked with 161 properties uh, over 21 miles of beach to kind of darken them. And here's an example of just what one year can do. And they, they did a measurement in 1999 and then again in 2000. And it resulted in about a, a 6% um, reduction in, in turtles moving the wrong way. And that's, that's just in one, one year. So since 2010, uh, the Sea Turtle Conservancy has retrofitted more than 200 properties uh, and darkened over 20 miles of, of beach. There are um, three rules that they they talk about. Keep it low, that's low height, low bulb wattage. Keep it shielded uh, or direct all the light towards the ground and not towards the uh, the dunes. And keep it long, use long wavelengths of yellow, amber, or red. So artificial lighting is a problem for sea turtles. Who knew? Uh, If you look on the... uh, the Planet Earth 2 uh, website, you, you will see a little segment that they did on how they're trying to rescue those sea turtles that go in, in the wrong direction. But again, uh, the Sea Turtle Conservancy website, you'll get some great before and after pictures of what they've done uh, with their work, and um, you should check it out, Sea Turtle Conservancy. Some really great diving involves diving from a boat. Unfortunately, for some people, boat diving is a challenge, and it's a challenge because of motion sickness. I am very fortunate to not be someone who is prone to seasickness, but it's a very real problem for a lot of people. So I thought I'd take this last segment today and talk a little bit more about motion sickness. So I looked on the Dan website, and there were several great articles out there that talked about motion sickness. 
Particularly, there is an article from March, uh, April 1995 edition by Dr. G. Yancey Maybane, who was the Dan Associate Medical Director at the time. And um, the article talks about the causes of motion sickness, and they believe that it's the brain's inability to resolve conflicting signals from our ears, our eyes, and our body. But that's just theory. They really don't know what, what actually completely causes motion sickness and what causes it for some people while others, like myself, are not prone to see sickness. So while they don't really fully understand it, they really don't know how to prevent it in all people. Now, the article talks about certain medications that are out there that people can use and what they suggest is that you try any medication several days before diving and particularly to determine uh, your response and if there are any uh, side effects. They talk about the most common types of medication are antihistamines, and you'll, you'll hear them by their um, brand name and then what's included in them. So Dramamine is one, and that's uh, diamond hydrate. Uh, bonine is meclizine, and Benadryl, which is a diphenhydramine, and Marzine, which is cyclozine. So those are different types of medications that you can try to alleviate seasickness. And it works for some people, and for others it don't. Now, there's also something called the transderm scope, or scoplamine patch. Um, it's the little uh, Band-Aid type of patch that people wear be behind their ear, um, but it also has some side effects, uh, including you know, dry mouth and, and uh, from the dry air that we're, we're um, breathing from our scuba tanks. There are also some other uh, side effects for certain people that are pretty um, uh, serious out there, hallucinations, confusion, uh, disorientation. Um, so the, the transderm scope uh, is something you want to be careful with. There was also an updated article in 2003 uh, by Dan Medical Information Specialist uh, Dan Kincaid, um, and it was an update to the motion sickness article. And it talked a little bit more about ginger as being uh, a remedy. Ginger, by uh, taking one gram of ginger orally uh, or, and then eating ginger snaps, uh, or uh, drinking ginger ale. He also talked about the relief bands, which is a non-invasive stimulus uh, of, on the underside of the wrist. It's battery-powered, and it stimulates the P6 acupuncture region on your wrist. There are also something called C-bands, which are a non-stimulating type of band. He also talks about a, a remedy called Motion Ease, which is natural oils that you apply to your earlobe. If you're interested in a lot more information about the transderm scope patch, there's an article also on the DAM website by Dr. Edward Thalman. He's a retired Navy captain who is the medical officer at the Navy Experimental Diving Unit, and he talks a lot about how well the transderm patch uh, worked for him and how it worked for Navy divers. So fortunately, um, some people, uh, if you're not prone to seasickness, count your blessings. And if you are, uh, take a look at some of these remedies and maybe you'll find the one that works best for you.
Well, that's a wrap on episode 15 of Scuba Shack Radio, and it's also a wrap on summer 2019. Hope you enjoyed your summer and hope you got in a lot of great diving. As always, I'd appreciate any feedback or comments you might have to pass along, along with any show suggestions will be greatly appreciated. Talk to you again in a couple of weeks, and thanks again for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.